So, you have the notes, right? We don't have to pass out the notes right now. I think you have the notes in your hand. You will notice that the notes have taken on a little bit of a different format in connection with what some of the requests were last week. Uh, you can hold your pen up right now and kiss your pen and say, I'm getting in the morning off. Except for the fact if you turn the paper over, you'll notice you'll have to pick it up again. I couldn't finish the whole two sheets without giving you some things to write. But without any further delay here, I want us to get back into our story. Before I push the first button here, which will bring an image to the screen, which will hopefully put us into one of the rooms in the interpreter's house. Um, I, I just want to very briefly remind you of what we've seen so far. I don't, I don't think we can do this every week because the story gets more and more complex. But you remember the very first image that we saw in the book was a man dressed in rags with a great burden upon his back and with a book in his hand, and that book being the Bible, and he leaves the city of destruction. <coughs> he leaves his wife and his family. And he begins to make his way toward the celestial city. It's not going to be an easy journey. It is. It's going to be a very complex journey. It really is. Uh, I think there have been complexities to it already, just in the amount of uh, the amount of the story that we've covered thus far. But he is instructed, first of all, by evangelists to head for the wicked gate, and without mentioning the stops along the way that he experienced, Christian came to the wicked gate and was pulled in the door by goodwill. Why was he pulled in the door? Arrows were being shot at him. Where were those arrows coming from? The castle of Beelzebub. Arrows were being shot at him. So goodwill pulled him in the door. And uh, kind of fast forward things here. He comes to a place which is called the interpreter's house. And he visits various rooms in the interpreter's house. We are ready to resume our study today by coming into what is described as a pleasant room. He has already seen in this place, a, in a private room, a portrait of a grave-looking figure that no doubt represented uh, preachers, not because preachers were all dour-looking individuals, <laughs> but because this individual was serious about the business that's been committed to him by God. He then was taken into a room where there was a man who was sweeping and a great cloud of dust arose and there was also a woman who poured water on the floor and swept images of the law and the gospel. He then went into a little room and saw two little children sitting in chairs. Those two little children are named Passion and Patience. And then the, the fireplace. And an, an individual pouring water on the fireplace, on the fire in the fireplace, to completely put it out. And yet, fire continued to surge. Why was that? 
because on the other side of the wall there was a man who was pouring on oil. So it kept the fire going. And now, now we come. To the image that we see in this room, and this is a this is a rather complex image. I think the most complex one so far that we're seeing. Christian sees a stately palace. Many people who are trying to make entrance into that palace, but who are trying unsuccessfully to enter that palace. He also saw a man at a table, and that man had a book and a pen at the table. Christian saw armed guards at the door of the palace. And then Christian saw a man of stout countenance with a large sword. With a large sword. Now, before we go any further, I want you to take your Bible and turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter very, chapter 11 is, is very interesting for a number of reasons, but Matthew chapter 11 begins when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples. He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, this is John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And that interesting passage that deals with John's doubts and everything. But I want you to skip down a little bit further. Come down to verse 11. Truly I say to you, says Jesus, among those born of women, there has arisen, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And who has ears to hear, let him hear. The reason I turn to this passage is because of this this that we read in verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. That, that is a very troublesome passage, it seems, to many people. But it is no doubt what John Bunyan has in mind when he is writing this picture, because this man with the large sword in his hand, and you'll notice in your notes now, the palace is heaven, the stout-hearted man said to the man at the table, put my name down. He drew a sword and fought most fiercely until he had pressed forward into the palace. It is those who are serious and possessed of a violent love for Christ will enter his kingdom. May I just say to you once again, I may have mentioned this last week, but I'll mention it again now. If Dirk Thomas was here today and bringing the lecture to us, and I'll mention Dirk Thomas later on before we're done today, 
he would say to you that one of the things that Bunyan has in mind here and that he is stressing is that there is no such thing as easy believism. Although many people think there is. All I have to do is say, I believe in Christ back when, you know, back when I was in a Sunday school class or back when I was at camp or whatever. And then there is absolutely no change in the life. No change. Never darkened the church door. <clears throat> uh, never did anything that had any any spiritual merit to it. It is individuals who mean ser who mean serious business, like this individual in this part of the picture, storming the kingdom. Storming the kingdom. Now John Bunyan wants to give us a picture here of an individual, Christian being that individual, who is very serious about his commitment to Christ. But let's move on here. We are still in the interpreter's house, and we are brought to another room, and you can see in your notes here, this is described as a dark room. And in this room, Christian sees a man in an iron cage, and we hear him saying this. I am not what I once was, a fair and flourishing professor. And by professor, he doesn't mean a college lecturer or something like that. He means one who professed to be a follower of Christ. I was once a fair and flourishing professor. I left off to watch and sinned against the light now there is no hope for me. Now, if I was reading right out of my copy or your copy of Pilgrim's Progress, the, the statement would be a little longer. But this is the essence of it. This is, this is a scene that if we were the one who had entered into that room and we heard those words, it might have sent a chill down our back. It might well have sent a chill down our back. The man in the cage teaches us not to venture one step on so dangerous a path as he took in his willful sinning and to cling to Christ in prayer and obedient conduct. That is a very, very dangerous path to go down. And what is it? Well, again, it's the path of leaving off watching stopping watching how your life is lived. And sinning against the light. The man in the iron cage, right? Is he trying to proclaim that this guy was saved and lost his salvation if he was a follower of Christ? Mm. No. Yeah, what do you all think there? No. No? Why do you say no so quickly, bro? Because... His own words, he says, I was once a happy professing Christian. He doesn't say he was a Christian. He said he was oh, a professor. He said, both in my own way of thinking and in the eyes of others. And he says, I felt that I was fit for the celestial state. So he was a hypocrite. <laughs> he was a professor, but not a possessor. Mm -hmm. You know? 
Do you know anybody like that today? I, and, and I don't want any names <laughs> to be sure. But perhaps we all do. And, and perhaps we should all be reminded, listen, be serious in your walk with Christ. Be serious in your walk with Christ. A man in an iron cage. But there's one more room to go into, and this is in what is called in the book a chamber. Notice words came at the bottom of the screen here. One rising from bed, dressing, and trembling at his dream. Have you ever had a dream that was so vivid and scary that you dared not fall asleep again? You didn't want to fall back into that dream? Uh, perhaps you have. This guy had a scary dream. What was his dream? The judgment day had come. And he was not ready. The judgment day had come. And he was not ready. Wow. That That is... Pretty scary. You'll notice in the right hand part there, the consciences of many are lulled to sleep by the deceptions of the world and the devil. I would say that's a scary scene too, wouldn't you? Real. So, Christian having been shown those things, by the interpreter, the interpreter said to Christian, have you considered all these things? Now it's a lot to take in. A lot to take in in those rooms. It really is. Have you considered all these things? Christian answered, yes. And they put me in hope and fear. You know what? That's a healthy balance, isn't it? In hope and fear. What was what was the what was the cause for Christians' hope in seeing those things? We can say. Well, there are a lot of spiritual realities that were shared in those things, and spiritual realities should give us hope. This is what God has revealed, and we hope in that. But also, there were some pretty fearful scenes that should not be soon forgotten. Should not soon be forgotten. The, the, the fears of, for example, the two little children in the room. What, what, what should incite fear in the heart from seeing the two little children in the room? The passion wants things right now. And when it gets things right now, tearing apart the treasure box, and being left with nothing but rags. Yeah. The center room, the the room that was in the middle was the fireplace. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So from that he would understand that Christ keeps pouring on the oil, and that the fire keeps on burning. Yeah. And I think that will give you hope as you walk through that, understanding that it is Christ that keeps. Into you. Yeah, very good, very good. Catherine, thank you. Very insightful. 
the, the contrast between hope and fear is he constantly had in each revelation, starting with the lions, there was fear there, but there was also the hope of getting through that the hope of keeping his eyes and focus on, on the truth. And then each one of those tests, each one of those rooms revealed that if he got his eyes off the cross, he would become fearful or lost. But the hope was, there was always hope of what the true message was, the fruit, keeping his focus on the cross and knowing that he had the hope of the celestial city in front of him. Yeah, when Lorraine asked, and I, I know, Lorraine, you, you, you no doubt knew the answer to the question that you asked also. Uh, did Bunyan think that it was possible to lose his salvation? Absolutely not. But we know Bunyan's theology well enough to know that that was absolutely not the case. I want to make a comment yeah. having some ancestors who were in, you know, who were Puritans, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then they had to make a confession, write out a confession of faith to join the church. And, and sometimes it almost sounded like I'll be obedient to the law. And there was a lot of works in there, but with, I don't know if they would think they could lose their salvation or if they had the trust of eternal security or just, In uh, some was, of those churches, there was sort of a, I don't know whether this is the term ever been used, but sort of a coattail salvation. You know, if, if my father before me was, was a Christian and he was a pastor too, and his father before him was a pastor and all that, and thinking that, you know, you automatically, I welcome them because of that. Yeah. Well, it's almost like they were, they put more emphasis from what I could see on the the Old Testament law. Yeah. And remember, and the Christians, Sabbath was, of yeah. course, very big. Yeah. And that yeah. was true on true. Well, Puritan Presbyterian roots that I had. Yeah. Let, let's see what else we have here. Interpreter said, as Christian leaves, the Comforter always be with you. Now, who is the Comforter? The Holy Spirit, of course. The Comforter always be with you to guide you in the way. Uh, may, may I just ask you today, do, do you have confidence that the Comforter guides you? How does the Comforter guide us? Susan? For me, it's bringing to mind scripture at the time I need it. Yeah. And, and, and Susan, thank you for giving that answer because the answer that I think we want to focus on is the Holy Spirit guides us through the work. Not through some visions, not through some inner feelings and all. He guides us through the work. Now, one more question and then we better see where Christian goes next year. Do you think Christian ever thought about these things after he left the interpreter's house? I, I, I can't help but think that he did. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's go. As he came to the cross, his burden rolled off and tumbled into the sepulcher nearby, and he saw it. So, uh, if you look at the notes here, uh, three, three arrowheads down from the rest of our chart, it says the highway on which he would go was fenced in with the walls of salvation. I think that's very interesting. Fenced in with the walls of salvation, and Christian now proceeds up the highway running 
but with his burden. As he came to the cross, his burden rolled off and tumbled into the sepulchre. And he saw it no more. He was filled with joy and tears. Filled with joy and tears. That's important, I think. Filled with joy and tears. Well, three, as, as Bunyan describes them, three shining ones. Three shining ones. The first of those shining ones declared your sins are forgiven. The second of the shining ones stripped off his rags and clothed him with new garments. And the third of those shining ones set a mark on his forehead and gave him a scroll with a seal. All three of these things, I think, are, are very significant. Uh, notice with regard to the third of these and the scroll with a seal. Notice your notes here. This represents the confirmation of his identity or his assurance. Oftentimes you will see it referred to as his assurance. <laughs> then look at the bottom of this page. I love this. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on his way singing. You have any idea what he's saying? You know what? You know what? Um, I will say to you that on, and, and you know these things play through my head when I'm out on my bike rides, this and other stuff. On my most recent bike rides, I decided, and I know I'm interrupted from doing it, but I was going to sing to myself, not for anybody else's benefit, to myself, all the songs I could think of that mention the cross. The cross. Now, somebody said, Lorraine, what did you say? At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burdens of my life. Burned my heart rolled away. Rolled away. There by faith, I received my And now I am happy all the day. Anybody think of another song? When I survey the wondrous cross. When I survey the wondrous cross. Oh, you guys, you weren't riding with me and offering suggestions. Seriously. The old rugged cross. The power of the cross. Yeah, there are a number of them. There are a number of them. So, Christian, if you will allow, I'm looking at my book and nobody has my exact book. But you'll notice that right after it describes the three shining ones here, and after it says in Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on his way singing, it has what he's saying. Now read it to you. Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in. Till came till I came hither. What a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must hear the burden fall off my back. Must hear the strings that bound me, bound it to me, crack. Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. That's what he's saying. Wow. 
That brings us to the next page, and you might as well pick up your friendly pen once again here, because there are a couple things that uh, we're going to have to look at here. Uh, the page that I'm putting on the screen here is this, some closing thoughts on salvation. And we really opened this section of our study with a look at salvation or soteriology when we made a brief visit, visit to Zacchaeus' house. And remember how we looked at that, that really uh, detailed description of what salvation is as Dr. Hendrickson, who very interestingly Steve mentioned in his sermon today, what Dr. Hendrickson mentioned in his commentary. Salvation is being delivered or rescued from the worst of all possible situations and brought into the best of all possible situations. And you can look back at your notes. I, I have a question. Just real quick back to the house of the interpreters. Could that scene be what the Bible talks about, that the Holy Spirit is coming to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and the judgment, and that at that point Christian was convicted of those things, and as he walks up to the cross, the salvation was to ensure that he would get there because God wanted him to get there? Very interesting observation. Very interesting observation. Maybe we'll catch an answer to that in a moment or two. Okay? So, here are the things that I put on this page, and I want us to get through this whole page, and the first thing is the question, was Christian saved at the wicked gate or at the cross? That is a very interesting question. Um... I have some pages that I printed out here, and I just have uh, in uh, in the notes here uh, two no two observations, an interesting story from C. H. Spurgeon, and the opinion of Dirk W. H. Thomas, whom I make reference to quite quite often. Spurgeon, let me read this to you. I printed this out. Spurgeon says, "I am a great lover of John Bunyan." but I do not believe him infallible. And the other day I met with a story about him, which I think a very good one. There was a young man in Edinburgh who wished to be a missionary. He was a wise young man. He thought, if I am to be a missionary, there is no need for me to transport myself far away from home. I may as well be a missionary in Edinburgh. Well, this young man started and determined to speak to the first person he met. He met one of those old fishwives. Those of us who have seen them can never forget them. They are extraordinary women indeed. Now, I don't know, I, I've never seen a fishwife, I don't think, but I have a vision in my head from reading this from Spurgeon. I read on. So, stepping up to her, he said, Here you are. Coming along with your burden on your back, let me ask you if you've got another burden, a spiritual burden. What? she asked. Do you mean that burden in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress? <laughs> because if you do, young man, I get rid of that many years ago, probably before you were born. But I went a better way to work than the Pilgrim did. 
The evangelist that John Bunyan talks about was one of your parsons that do not preach the gospel, for she said, uh, for he said, keep that light in thine eye and run to the wicked gate. Why, man alive, that was not the place for him to run to. He should have said, do you see that cross? Run there at once. But instead of that, he sent the poor pilgrim to the wicked gate first. And much good he got from going there. He got tumbling into the slough and was like to have been killed by it. <coughs> but did you not, the young man asked, go through any slough of despond? Yes, I did, but I found it a great deal easier going through with my burden off than with it on my back. <coughs> and Spurgeon continues and says, the old woman was quite right. John Bunyan was putting the, getting rid of the burden too far off from the commencement of the pilgrimage. If he meant to show what really happens, he was right. But if he meant to show what ought to have happened, he was wrong. We must not say to the sinner, now sinner, if thou wilt be saved, go to the baptismal pool, go to the wicked gate, go to the church, do this or do that. No, the cross should be right in front of the wicked gate. And we should say to the sinner, throw thyself down there, and thou art safe, and thou art not safe till thou canst cast off thy burden and lie at the foot of the cross and find peace in Jesus. Well, this kind of represents Spurgeon's opinion of the things, and whether you can see it or not, I, I trust you can. Spurgeon would answer emphatically, Christian was saved at the cross. And he would, listen, I don't think there ever was a greater lover of Bunyan or Pilgrim's Progress than Spurgeon. You can't read a book a hundred times and say, well, you know, he could give it or you know, take it or leave it. No, he was a great lover of him. But in this point, he disagreed with them. So he says, the cross, that's where his vote is cast. Now, Derek Thomas, dare I say, my friend, Derek Thomas, although he would say, who's Bob Carver? <laughs> I know him. I don't know whether, I don't think he knows me. But here's what Derek Thomas says. Pilgrim's progress includes a strong emphasis on conversion. A long time passes before Christian's great burden of sin is removed, rolling down the hill and into the tomb. Why does it take Christians so long? Why the prolonged effortful, uh, effortful struggle with sin before finding relief and assurance? Was Bunyan attempting to suggest that this is how all conversions take place? Was he deliberately attacking a form of easy believism? suggesting that would-be Christians need to pass through an agonizing struggle before conversion. Bunyan was accused of such after the first edition of Pilgrim's Progress in 1678. Uh, Bunyan was retelling his own story. He wrestled with the guilt of sin for several years before he came to assurance. And perhaps it is best to understand what happened when the burden fell from Christian's shoulders at the, as the moment when Christian was given assurance rather than the moment of his actual conversion. So uh, there are Thomas, and, and there's more that I could read, but I want to make sure we get to the other things here. There Thomas would take the position that he was saved at the wicked gate and he received assurance of his salvation after struggles at the cross, right? Colossians 2, 13, and 14 
When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out our certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. All right, let me guess what side Lorraine's taking on. <laughs> and Lorraine is not alone. Seems to me that she has enlisted Paul on her side, you think? Right here? I think so. Uh, why do you think there are different opinions on this? Because they weren't quoting scripture. Why are there different opinions? Because what? They, they, were, were, are you, they were giving opinions, but they weren't giving scripture. Let me get Derek Thomas on speed dial here and see what he was saying. Don't tell me that Derek Thomas doesn't appeal to script. Rob? Because it is one man describing his journey. So, unless he implicitly tells you, then I think it's left up to. I mean, I'd lean towards Spurgeon. Okay. 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 Brent, would you would you care to to share your I, I don't want to put you on the spot. I know we've talked a little bit about this. I think some have mentioned it. It seems to me that it's a different people's experience. You know, that, that some people the Holy Spirit is sort of you know, it takes time to bring you alive. I mean obviously God's who's waking us up from the dead. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's not up to us. Yeah. But you know, it may not be just all instantaneous. I mean, some people might be uh, a longer period of time where he's kind of making them alive, making them aware of their sin, and then they get to the actual moment of salvation. Others may happen very quickly you know, at that moment. You know, as Brent and I were talking about this, I wasn't last week, you know, a little bit after Sunday school or whatever. Um, you, you know, there are a couple of things that come to my mind. One thing is, I mean, in looking at this, Great classroom uh, full of people here. So that's, let's say there are 40 people in here. I don't know how many here, maybe 50 people. I don't know. Um, I've said this before, but I wish I could snap my finger right now and time would stop. And any hunger pains you're presently having for <laughs> dinner after church are ceased. And we could just hear the testimony of salvation for everybody in the room. I mean, <clears throat> salvation is not an easy thing um, because when you look at Arsis Bro was talking about that, and you know, you can have a logical sequence of how things are happening when you go to Romans eight and you read through the Golden Chain, but then when you translate that into time and space, it's really hard to tell when are things happening at which point. And when Jesus, you know, we would say that Jesus was an evangelist, uh, you know, preaching to the people, but there was, you know, he, he preached about the narrow gate and the white gate and encouraged people to go through the narrow gate and the white gate. And when I think Christian leaving the city of destruction, there were probably dozens if not hundreds of other gates for, for him to go through where people would tell him, take this way and take that way and all that. I mean, you look at our world, you know, we I just helped with Mormons on uh, Saturday and they would repress them, represent the gate. So I don't necessarily think that walking through the gate is necessarily meaning that you're safe at the gate. It just means that you're starting to get on the right track 
to to get there. May I suggest you take your pen in your hand and let me give you a couple of things to write now this morning. Under this point, with respect to salvation, first arrowhead, is there one way only or are there many ways? The solas. Now I've written it in Latin here. I'll give it to you in English if you'd rather put it in English here. These three of the five solas are sola gratia, sola fide, and solus Christus. They very simply mean grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That was a great emphasis of the reformers. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And you'll notice, sola, alone, only. But, let me go to the second line, and that is, oh, no, I don't want that. The stories. The stories. The great variety of our testimonies, if we had the opportunity to hear them today. All of our testimonies would be how we were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but the circumstances are so different. Let me, let me just ask you this question. How many of you were born into a home, a Christian home, with good Christian parents? How many of you were born into that? I mean, I was, for sure. I, I was, and I thank God for that. Did that automatically make me a Christian? But was there any value to it? Oh, huge, huge, huge value. Huge, huge, huge value. There was. Now, I assume that the rest of you who did not raise your hand were not born into a Christian home, and there the circumstances would have been widely, widely different. But were any of you not even born in this country? That's what I've heard. I've heard you say, Daniel? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, our testimonies would be different, and yet they all have something in common. We trusted in Christ. We trusted in Christ's death on the cross to be the means of the forgiveness of sins. All this that fell on the screen and is now falling on the screen again. <clears throat> You can write in this, and, and there's a very interesting story that's the backstory for these four Greek words on the screen. And the backstory is this. There was, in England, many years ago, a Salvation Army group that was having a street meeting, if you would call it that, on a street corner when some of the members were playing music he gathered the crowds and others were beginning to make their way through the crowds to distribute some literature and so on. And the story focuses on a Salvation Army lassie, young lady, who spotted somebody in the crowd and spotted that individual and said, that individual for sure is in need of salvation. And who was it? It was an individual with a clerical collar on. <laughs> and she concluded, surely he needs salvation. And she went to that individual and said to him, Sir, are you saved? And that person responded, Young lady, do you mean Esothe? Or Sesosmai? Or Sozomai? Or Sothesomai? Now, not being 
all my Greek students in class, only one person is tracking with me right now, maybe a couple <laughs> others, and that's Daniel. But these are four different verb forms, all from the same basic verb, sozo, which is the Greek word which means I save. Put into these different tense forms, the first one can be translated, I have been saved. Second one, I am saved. Third one, I am being saved. And the fourth one, I will be saved. And I say to you that all four of these tense and voice combinations of this very same Greek verb express four different truths with regard to the salvation that we possess. I trust that all of us in this room can say, I have been saved. I was saved at a point in the past. We can say, I am saved. That is, I am in the state of being saved on the basis of a past completed act. My best favorite Greek tense, the perfect tense. Or I am being saved. God is doing a work in me. Now, normally we refer to that as what? The work of sanctification. We do. And then finally, I will be saved. You know, we will be saved when we'll be rid of, you know, when our redemption will be complete, we'll be rid of this frail body, this sinful body, and all that. Joy? So in our homeschool, we've been studying tenses and all this. So it's really neat. She just recognized the present participle, past participle, and how our um, homeschool model is to know God and make him known, and how... Um, even in our verb tenses, how it matters and how you can see God. Uh, this, as the story is told, and it's a true story, the story is told that the, that that individual with the young lassie approach was none other than Dr. Brookfoss Westcott, who was a great commentator on some of the books in the New Testament and so on. So she was floored. In fact, that's the way it's read in the story. So let me go on here. Let me go on here. And there's something else that we can put on here. And that is this. The matter of salvation is so great that the one single term, salvation, cannot exhaust it. And a whole bunch of other a whole bunch of other words appear on the screen here. We speak of justification. We speak of redemption. We speak of regeneration. I should rather say the scriptures speak of all these things. And reconciliation, and propitiation, and adoption. All of those terms are used in various contexts in the scripture relating to the matter of our salvation. Salvation is so rich, so full. And we have about eight minutes left in class today. And for number four, why I believe that Christian was saved at the cross. Yeah, you can write down the word cross. And here it is. You don't have to write anything down unless I add things at the end. First arrowhead, it is here that his burden rolled away. And he said with a merry heart, he has given me rest by his sorrows and life by his death. Second of all, there the first shining one said, 
your sins are forgiven. The second gave him a change of raiment. The third set a mark on his forehead and gave him a roll. Third arrowhead. Christian's song makes most sense if this is the place of his salvation. Next, after his unwise decision to go to the village of morality, evangelists said that one of the reasons that this was such a poor choice for Christian is that it made the cross odious to him. I don't know whether you remember seeing that or not, but that's one of the reasons that evangelists gave to Christian why it was such a bad decision to go to the village of morality. It made the cross odious. Next thing, when Christian has goodwill, if he could not help him off with his burden on his back, the reply that came from goodwill was this, be content to bear it until you have come to the place of deliverance. And what was the place of deliverance? Yes, I have another one. So you can write this with your hand. Hold on one second here. Paul's testimony, and you can write down a couple scripture references. Paul's testimony, Lorraine Davis 1 from Colossians, where was it? Lorraine, Colossians chapter 2, 2.14, where he nailed to the cross. But we can also write Romans 10.9, 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18, and Galatians 6.14. And I've written out a card just last night for you all. Galatians 6.14, this is from the ESV. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I have two helpers here that are going to come around the room and give one of these to every one of y'all in here. I hope there are enough of them for you in here. I think I could even add to the list Jesus' own testimony, and I would read some verses from John chapter 10. I'm a good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. I would even add one more point, and that is Calvin and Luther, except the fact that uh, Bunyan hadn't written Pilgrim's Progress yet, so I can't, <laughs> I can't appeal to them. You, you know what I would say right now? I would say that if Derek Thomas, whom I mentioned many times, if he were here today, and I would say, Derek Thomas, would you like to say anything, sir? He would stand up here, and he would probably chew me up and spit me out. <laughs> and make mincemeat out of me. But he's not here, so... That's my opinion. One more thing, and then I'm going to call and cast for you. When we're talking about this matter of salvation and our testimonies, and how different our testimonies are, could anybody in this room tell me when the Apostle Paul was saved? Libby, say it again. The road to Damascus. The road to Damascus. We can read about it in detail in Acts chapter 9, and then read about it again in Acts 22, and again in Acts 26, when Paul shares his own testimony. Yeah, it's clear. Could anybody tell me when Peter was saved? That's going to be a little bit harder to do. Or, well, was that the moment of his salvation, or was it just a part of, you know, his decorating? I think when it comes to the apostles, it comes a little bit more difficult, maybe just because we don't have enough information, but a little bit more difficult to pinpoint the time of their salvation. Have you ever known anybody who has said, I don't really know the time of my salvation, but I have no question that I'm saved? 
Have you ever known anybody like that? Uh, I'm in that category, and that means you can fire me for next week if you like. <laughs> or Casper. There's, there's one more point from the story. The, the guy that was in the dark room never made it to the cross. And so for him to, to not have his salvation and claim that there's no hope for him, that has to be something that has to happen before the cross. Well, you know, this is a great book you've got. We have come to the cross, and I'm very confident this is where this is where his burden rolled away. This is where his sins are forgiven. Christian is a new man, new set of clothes, mark on his forehead, scroll on his hand, and he proceeds onward. And let me say this to you guys: it is going to be a difficult journey. It's been difficult up to this point. It's not going to get easier from here on. It's not. It's going to continue to be a difficult journey. So where should you go in your reading from here? Ah, go to the Palace Beautiful and read through what happens in the Palace Beautiful. This is going to be another place like, like the Interpreter's House had many significant rooms with lessons. The Palace Beautiful is going to be a beautiful place with many significant conversations. All right? Who's the Interpreter? Pardon me? Who's the Interpreter? Who is the interpreter? The interpreter could be just a generic picture of a pastor, a preacher. Some suggest the Holy Spirit. But the, but the interpreter points out the Holy Spirit. Points out the yeah, this is true. This is true. Yeah, that's true. That's a little bit of a conflict, you know, for those who would say that. I think. Yes. Who are the shining ones? Who are the shining ones? My my guess, and, and you guys, you probably discovered this already, that I am not the ultimate expert on Pilgrim's Project. I'm not, for sure. I'm a great lover of Pilgrim's Project. Not my, my guess would be three angels. I don't know. Did they look like angels? Should I go back? They all have long blonde hair. <laughs> yeah. Susan? I want to thank you for the notes. Is it being helpful? You know, pay more attention to what you're telling us. Yeah. I appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciate it very much. Okay. We continue on, God willing, next week. The only thing better than getting together again next week and continue on the story is if we're all in heaven by next week. <laughs> that would be so much better. Right? Lord, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you so much for your salvation. Lord, you brought in your eternal plan to bring salvation to men who are lost and without hope in this world. That's where we were, Lord. Nothing that we could have done, nothing that we should have done could have saved us. Father, thank you that we, this morning, are new creatures in Christ. Lord, bless us in the week to come. Lord, I pray that you would give us opportunities, each one of us, to be able to talk to somebody about Jesus this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.